sermon series, Adventures in Acts, reading this book of Acts. And it's, it's a book of travel. It's a book of adventure. It's a book that tells us how to deal with one another. It's a book that we learn how to deal with conflict, Mike, between you and I and others in the church. It's a book where we learn how to go out and evangelize. It's, it's a book where we learn how to love on one another and greatly respect one another. And it's a, a book where we see different cultures coming together all under one simple umbrella of the love of Christ. It's a beautiful book of drama and adventure, snake bites and shipwrecks. It's really interesting, and it's really fun to study. I've really enjoyed, up to this point, learning all these new things that I see in Acts. And I hope you're enjoying this book as much as I'm enjoying this book. If you would, take out your uh, incomplete outline at this time, and, and we'll fill in some of the blanks. I want to just look at a little bit of review and remind you we left off uh, with Stephen and Philip last week and engaging in divine appointments. I hope last week you were thinking about all through your life, everyone that you were meeting, divine appointment, divine appointment. Is God setting me before this person at this particular time to be a servant of his? We talked about being willing to engage, using discomfort to move us into the mission field. We talked about realizing that God bridges all gaps. There's no one outside of his kingdom that he can't bring into. And divine appointments, as we talk with others and as we see these divine appointments, we have to be Christ-centered. So we're now in uh, the middle, uh, or excuse me, in 9 and 10 of Acts. So we're in, we're in Judea and Samaria, and to be quite honestly, we're going to break out of uh, anything that's considered Israel at all, or ever have been, and we're actually going to go outside into Damascus today. So we're right in the middle. Remember in Acts 1, we see the directive, be my witnesses, and it's going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. We get our directive to be witnesses to the world. God in a box. Sometimes we think we have everything figured out and, and we make assumptions about God based upon our wants instead of real truths. It's just our nature. To give you an illustration, there's this, there's this doctor and she's driving her little child her little girl to school to drop her off. And she's in the big Cadillac Escalade and her daughter's in the back and she's got a, a pair of stethoscope in her ears. And she's, uh, she's talking back there and she's moving the stethoscope around and the mother just becomes overwhelmed as we do with our, in pride for our children, right? She wants to, she's thinking she wants to be to be well-educated, and she wants to become a, a, a doctor, and, and she wants to study the sciences, and, and she wants to learn, Micah, how to heal and how to serve people. And she's welling up inside because she assumes, Jeremiah, this is what her, her daughter wants. And then all of a sudden, Joel, she says, would you like to supersize that with your fries, sir? <laughs> and all assumptions jump out the window, right? 
sometimes we make assumptions about who God is and what he's doing because we want to try to put him inside our theological box and sometimes he jumps out, doesn't he? We're going to see that in today's scripture. So, if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, access one in front of you. If you don't have your own Bible, we keep Bibles at the back on a table. And you're welcome to pick those up, take them home. They're yours. They're our gift to you. We want everyone who is studying with us to be able to follow along and make sure that Keith Castleman is not crazy like he got it this morning in class and that you keep him to the Scripture and you keep him to the right Scripture, right? So take a Bible. Make it your own. Open it up. And while we're talking about these things, make notes on the side. Underline what's important to you. Be a student of the Bible. So every week, I, I've tried to make the commitment to sticking to a little bit of geography and a little bit of history as we go. And some of you are telling me that's the best part of my sermons. So we start in Jerusalem, okay? But then we go some 340 miles to Damascus. And to be honest with you, I think Damascus is really just a little bit about, about six inches higher than I have it posted. But that's as high as this really cool graphic would go, so that's where Damascus got put. But Damascus, I want you to know, Damascus is outside of anything that's ever been considered the Israel nation. All right? It's probably, in this time, it's probably under a Armenian slash Roman rule, okay? It is not considered Judea or Galilee or, or, or Samaria at all. It's its own nation, its own country, all right? And then we're going to look at a story that starts in Joppa and then moves up to Caesarea. So you got those places in your mind? Damascus. It's the capital city of Syria. It's 2,200 feet above sea level. It's considered one of the oldest continuous occupied cities in the world. Let me rephrase that. I said that wrong. It is absolutely the oldest continuously occupied city in the world. There may be other older cities than Damascus, but they haven't been continuously occupied. Damascus has been continuously occupied longer than any other city in the world. In AD 70, uh, Josephus reports that there's 10 to 18,000 Jews in Damascus. So there is a large population, even now, in where we're at, somewhere in between 34 and 37. AD, there's already a large population of Jews in Damascus. It was considered the crossroads of the world. All trade roads from the Orient to the Western world, all routes from the north down to Egypt, they all pass through Damascus. It is the crossroads of the world. Then we have Joppa. Joppa is at the southern end of Tel Aviv. We're always hearing on the news about things happening in Tel Aviv. Well, Joppa is at the very southern tip of Tel Aviv. It is now talked about, you hear it on the news, as Jaffa. It, is an ancient, it was the ancient port 
of the city of Israel, one of the oldest functioning harbors in the world. The cedars of Lebanon are floated to Joppa for Solomon's temple. Uh, Jonah embarked uh, from there to Tarshish, which probably is around the rock of Gibraltar. It was the farthest way Jonah could get, but he leaves out of the port of Joppa. It is where Peter raises Tabitha from the dead and saw the sheets lowered uh, and called to Cornelius in our story today. Caesarea is 30 miles south. No, that's wrong. Caesarea is 30 miles north of Joppa. Still, it is a still a working harbor, but much smaller today than in Peter's time. It was once called Stratton's Tower, but Herod the Great renamed it in honor of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus somewhere between 22 and 10 B.C. Okay, a little history. I thought Caesarea was really interesting. Uh, during the time, during this time uh, that we have in Acts, it serves as a capital city of Judea for Rome. Now, this is interesting. If you're a Jew, what's the capital of Judea? Jerusalem, right? But if you're a Roman, your capital city is Caesarea for the Judean area. That's where they built their palaces. That's where they had their headquarters was in Caesarea because it was such an important port for the rest of the empire. It was the seaport for grains to Egypt. I've heard it said that if this port were to close during the Roman rule, that Rome would have starved to death. All of the grains that are coming up out of Egypt are stopping at Caesarea and being reaped put on different boats and traveling to the Roman world. Herod the Great built it up. It was the largest man-made seaport of its time. It is where Philip lived and had four prophetess daughter, where Herod, Herod Agrippa dies, and where Paul is eventually imprisoned. Here is the port today. Now, you see this small area is considered the port today, but this large yellow area is where they think the port used to be, and that shows how large it was at the time. It was over 40 acres of harbor, and it would house over 300 boats. Herod built many marble buildings, fabulous palaces, Massive theaters like the one you see. And he also built two huge coliseums for games, for horse racing, for chariot racing. And it was quite popular for that. Here, they even had, the palaces even had outdoor pools that went right up to the sea. And you can see here, I, I couldn't find a, a good picture for this, but here are tiles and they're there are mosaic tiles that are put together, and this was the flooring as you stepped up to almost an Olympic-sized pool that is here in the background. But Caesarea did have one weakness. It had one flaw to putting the city there. No fresh water. They had to build huge aqueducts for seven and a half to ten miles. There were... I believe two of them, 
And this is one of them. Still, still the ruins run for a long ways down the beach, and you can see these aqueducts. You can even go online, and you can see how large they are. They're aqueducts that men can actually stand in. And they would bring the waters from the foothills of Mount Carmel. You guys remember Mount Carmel from the Old Testament? It's where Elisha does battle with 450 of the Baal prophets. Remember that? And then he goes up later on and he's, and he's praying, looking out over the sea. And he's praying for rain. And he sees a little cloud. Remember that? That happens in view of Caesarea. And that is where the water came from. This is also where Pilate's stone was found in 1965, or excuse me, 61 in Caesarea. Well, what's so big about this stone? Well, there is no extra writings, there's no outside writings, there's no non-Christian writings about Pilate. So for years, historians said, oh, Pilate's just a made-up story that the Christians made up to tell the story of Jesus. He really didn't exist. Well, then in 1961, they find this rock. And guess whose name is engraved upon this rock? Pontius Pilate's name. And a lot of historians had to reconsider everything they said about Pontius Pilate. And that was found there in Caesarea. Keep in mind, that's a... That's a, a perfectly good place for it to be because the Roman headquarters was in Caesarea. All right, God in a box, Acts chapter 9 and 10. We're going to skip a little bit there, but it's going to cover those two chapters. What do I mean by God in a box? Just when we think we have God figured out and he fits into this nice, safe, predictable box, he breaks out. God is sovereign. God is majestic. God is mysterious. And to be quite honest, sometimes he's a little scary, right? And God has all those qualities in the stories that we're going to study today. So I don't think we should put God in a box. We'll start with chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. I want you to understand who's this Saul. His Hebrew name is Saul, and his Greek name is Paul. His birthplace is in Tarsus. That's the capital city of Cilicia. We studied that last week. Now, his culture is very interesting. He's a Roman citizen. He was born in a town that was Hellenistic, but because of its placement in Cilicia, it's very important so the Romans see it as a Roman town. So he's Roman by birth, okay? He's Hellenistic, he's Greek because of the culture that he was born into as a young child. His parents probably... His parents probably dealt with and, and, and maybe even dressed as and dealt with the, the Greek culture. So in a way, he's Greek, he's Hellenistic, but he's very much Hebrew, okay? He grew up in Jewish culture. Later on in life, they moved to Jerusalem, and, and he is raised very much in a Jewish, Pharisaical uh, uh, culture, 
So he probably, well, I know he can. He can speak Latin, he can speak Greek, and he can speak Aramaic. His education was to be a Pharisee under the feet of Gamaliel, who is in the house of Hillel, who is a peaceful, gentle. We studied this before. A peaceful, gentle Pharisee uh, house in that they believed that the, that the, the love of God should come from the heart and could not be pressed upon anyone, could not be forced upon anyone. But somewhere along his way, David, he goes to the house of Shammai, which was the forceful house of the Pharisees, who believed in the outside-in way. We're going to force you to obey God's law. And somewhere along the way, when he was radicalized by them, he became a professional kidnapper, an assassin's aide. Now, I want you to understand, and, and I don't really know how to relate this very well, but I'm going to try to, for you to understand what kind of guy we're dealing with, all right? The first time we see Saul, he is standing holding the coats of men who are, who are stoning Stephen. Now, I've always wondered, why didn't he, if he approved of it, participate in the stoning of Stephen. But I think it helps us to understand the personality we see here in Saul. See, Saul would have been a Pharisee that was all about the outside. Inside, he's saying, oh yes, stone him. Hit that Christian in the face and in his body, murder him with rocks. That's what I want you to do. But I can't, take, I can't participate in it because it's against the law. You see, it was against the law to stone Stephen the way they did. And it was against the Roman law. It was breaking the law of the land to stone him without approval from the Romans. See, what they were doing was against the law, but his heart was where? I, I'm going to hold your coats and give you all approval to stone this man. Do you see how ugly that is? And let me... Let me say, that develops, and he gets uglier and meaner. Let's say that you and your family, you're Jewish, and suddenly you hear the teachings of Christ. Maybe you heard Peter's first sermon, and you think, wow, this is incredible. I see him as the Messiah. I see him as fulfilling all scripture. And you devote your life to being Christ follower and disciple. And you're trying to live out your life the way that you think you should under the rule and reign of God. But there comes an uprising in town. And it becomes dangerous for you to live in Jerusalem. So you take your children and you all move over 300 miles away to Damascus. You move 340 miles away to Damascus, and you start a new life. And this guy Saul hates you so much, Lance, that he takes warrant arrest papers from the temple, from the Pharise- from the Sadducees, or from the Sanhedrin, 
And he travels out of his own country into another country. And he's going to kick down your door and drag out you and your children and put you in chains and drag you back to Jerusalem. And he's going to beat you, maybe even to the point of death, until you blaspheme and say, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Or that you give up all hope of Christ being your leader. That's the kind of man that we see in the beginning of our story. Do you understand that? This is not the kind, nice, compassionate Paul that we see later. This is Saul before he has an understanding of Jesus Christ. Folks, that's very important as we go into our story. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that they, if they found any there who belonged to the way, we don't know what to call it yet. We're not called Christians yet. We're called the way or a sect okay, of the Nazarene, whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Can you believe this? This man's been studying Yahweh his entire life. And then when he meets God, he doesn't even recognize God. Does that give you an idea how far away from God Saul is at this part of his life? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now wait a minute. Saul never saw Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by, who are you persecuting? What he means is you're persecuting the body of Christ. Who is the body of Christ? The church. You're persecuting me. Do you see? We are the body of Christ. I am Jesus who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. And they heard a sound but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat and did not drink anything. His world's been turned upside down to the point he's fasting. He's beside himself. Everything in Saul's world has just been upended. In Damascus there lived a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on the straight street and ask the man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, I love this part. It's like suddenly Ananias thinks, that God can't see and hear and know everything, okay? Lord, let me remind you, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. I love that. 
First sentence is, go, exclamation point. This man has been my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to open his eyes in more ways than one. Immediately, something like scales fell off Saul's eyes. Sophie always says, ooh, gross, Dad. It really is kind of gross. If you look the Greek word up here for, for what fell off his eyes, it means it peeled off like you would peel off something from an onion. Okay? Something peeled off his eyes, and then suddenly he could see again. He got up and was baptized after taking some food and regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he really come here to take us all prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews in Damascus in Damascus by, provi- by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. What better person to prove that Jesus is, is the Messiah than a Pharisee who's been studying the Old Testament all his life? And now it makes sense to him. Now he realizes all those prophetic words in the Old Testament are pointing to Christ. And then three years go by. Is that in your Bible? Does your Bible say right there at the end of 22 and then three years go by? It doesn't, does it? But it does. If you turn over to Galatians 1, 15 and 18, Paul tells us here that he goes away for three years. Listen to this. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, I did, not go to I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. He's calling himself an apostle. That's strange. You're supposed to see Jesus. You're supposed to understand Jesus and see Jesus before you call yourself apostles. Well, maybe he did. He definitely saw him on the road. He saw the light that knocked him down to his knees. But listen to what it says. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stay with him for 15 days. So for three years Saul goes off into Arabia. Now, there's been a lot of stipulation about what did he do for three years in Arabia, okay? And if you read some commentators, they'll say, oh, I'm sure that he was preaching and teaching. And then if you read other commentators, they'll say, no, for three years, Jesus was teaching him and teaching him like he did the rest of the apostles so he would understand him. And I'll let you decide. Back to Acts 9. Verse 23. 
After many days had gone by, those are those times in Arabia, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch over the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by the night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. That's so sad. Can I just tell you, that's sad. When a person has dedicated their life to Christ and others won't believe it, that's sad. But then there's Barnabas, right? The great encourager. The guy who's willing to put himself out there for Christ. The guy who's willing to to sell his own property and just lay it at the feet of the disciples. The guy who's willing to forget what Mark ran away from them on a missionary journey and just forgive and forget and, and, and encourage him to be the son that Christ has always wanted. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he was preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in the Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. What is the deal with Hellenistic Jews, right? They're all the time dragging people into court, trying to get people killed. Then the believers learned of this. They took him down to Caesarea put him on a boat, and send him back to Tarsus. Why Tarsus? Because that's where he's from. He's got family and friends there. He'll be safe there. It's a long ways away. When the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. All right, turn your page, let your finger fall down. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. By the way, I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this story because we don't have time to read it all. I do, but you guys want to make it to lunchtime. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devoted and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. All right, so who is this guy? Cornelius. Birthplace, Italy, we don't know for sure, okay? Possibly, maybe. His culture, very Roman, extremely Roman. His career, he's a Roman soldier for at least 25 years. When you were inscripted into the Roman to the, to, the, to the Roman army, you were to serve not four years like we do, okay? He was to serve, minimum was 25 years. Now, because he was a centurion, he's probably been in the army for at least 25 years, maybe longer, because once you reach that rank, then you are well paid. Okay, these are not just soldiers. Centurions were put in, all ki- in charge of all kinds of things. Uh, digging uh, uh, aqueducts, building bridges, uh, put in charge of overseeing large territories, not just on a, on a uh, soldier, but, but on supplies and keeping things, the peace in areas. These are important men, and they would 
take care of or were in charge of anywhere from 80 to 120 different men. Religion. Scripture says here he is a devout God-fearer. Okay? That's different than a proselyte. A proselyte's had a little bit of surgery, been circumcised. He's taken on all the, cult, all the kosher food laws. He has become Jewish completely in his life. It doesn't say that of this man. It says that he was a God-fearer, which probably means that he recognizes Yahweh as the one God. He probably grew up in a multi-theistic or polytheistic world where there's many gods. But now he sees that's all rubbish and there really is just one God and he's enjoying worshiping that God and believing in that God. But he hasn't completely taken on the Jewish life. All right, here we go. Verse 3. One day, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw the angel of God who came to him, and he's fearful, and, and he's trying to follow God, okay? And this angel comes to him and says, the Lord has heard your prayers. He's seen your gifts to the poor. They're offered up like a memorial before him. Now, I want you to go to Joppa and send for a, a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with a tanner in Joppa, right there beside the sea. Go get him. Bring him back here. The angel disappears. Cornelius grabs a trusted soldier, or maybe not a soldier, but a servant, and he sends him and some men straight down to Joppa to go get Peter. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter and Simon the Tanner's house is on the roof. And he's hungry and he's sleepy and he kind of nods off. And an angel comes to him and a sheet is let down. Now, this is a very interesting word, a sheet. When I thought sheet, when I heard sheet as a kid, I always thought a sheet that went across the bed. Well, this sheet is that same sheet, or it could be a sheet of a sailboat. The sheet that's on a sailboat, it could be one of those two. So there, it lowers down before him. And inside this sheet, there's all kinds of animals. And he says, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, 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 no. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not about to eat that. Peter's got a problem with telling the Lord no, right? He's told him no before he got trouble. And then God says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And then Peter's just like me. God has to do it three more times to get his attention and really get through to him. Meanwhile, while Peter wakes up and is wondering about this vision that he's had about this sheep, the men sent from Cornelius stop and are at the gate. They go to the gate. The spirit of him, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. 
So go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the man, I am the one that you're looking for. Why have you come? The men tell the whole story about why they have been sent. And then Peter does this incredible thing for Peter. He invites Gentiles into the tanner's house to spend the night. His heart's starting to open up. At least now he's being hospitable to people that God sends directly to him. The next day, Peter started out with them, with those same men. They went to Joppa, okay? It probably took a day and a half to get there, maybe two days to get there. We're talking about 30 miles they have to travel. Cornelius was expecting them and had called his, his relatives and all his close friends, his whole house, as Virgin may say. Peter entered into the house of Cornelius. As soon as he walks in, Peter drops to his, or excuse me, Cornelius drops to his knees in front of Peter. Peter runs over and says, what are you doing? Get up, stand up. I'm only a man, just like you. Peter walks in and finds this huge gathering of people inside the house. Peter starts the speech off. Never start this, your speeches off like this, okay? This is the most tactless thing I've ever seen at the beginning of a speech. You're well aware it's against our law for us Jewish folks to associate with you Gentiles. Probably not your best lead-in sentence, right? To bringing people to Christ. But God has shown me that I should call no one impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. It sounds like he's kind of objecting just being there and saying, you guys know I'm not supposed to talk to you. May I ask why you sent for me? Well, they explain why they sent for him and what's happened, what's transpired up to this point. And then finally Cornelius says, hey, now we're all here. We're in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter breaks in to his sermon. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Epiphany, light on for Peter. Now he understands what he said at the sermon on Pentecost when he says this is to bless all nations, those who are near and far off. i got to tell you, when he said that in the sermon at Pentecost, I don't think Peter had a clue to what he was saying. I think the Holy Spirit was leading him to say it. But now, now he gets it. He goes through his whole sermon about Christ and who he is. And then he says, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him may receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. This is incredible. He's witnessed the Holy Spirit come upon these Gentiles. And some of these are Roman Gentiles. They're the guys we used to call dogs. And now the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And if you don't think that God has broken out of Peter's box, it has. Surely 
he says, no one can stand in the way of being baptized with water. Kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch says, what is it that's going to be a barrier for me to be baptized? And Peter says, now I realize there's nothing. What can hold them back from being baptized with water? They received the Holy Spirit just as we did, baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he ordered that they may be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked Peter to stay on for a few days. Man, God has broken out of two boxes. One is Saul's box, and one is Peter's box. And God's working in ways that they never imagined. So what can we learn from these stories? Number one, never assume or underestimate God's ability to use anyone. Folks, if God can use a brutal warrior, a centurion, a man of occupying force that really has brutalized the Jewish people, if he can be used by God to change his whole household, then he can use anyone. Think about that for just a second. Gordon, what if, what if, you brought your whole household. Now, when I say your whole household, what if you brought all of your family? Man, that's like 150 parishes, right? Just in northwest Arkansas. There's parishes everywhere. What if your whole household, everyone that you did business with, and everyone you were friends with, what if this morning, you brought all those people to Christ. We'd have to have, seven, we'd have to have seven services just to fit them all in the building, right? And Keens, my goodness. We'd have to add a new section and build a loft. Do you see what I'm saying? Never underestimate that God can use you. And if he just used you to influence your friends, your family, and your coworkers, that's huge. And then what about this crazy guy, Saul? If God can use a hardline, fanatical, ultranationalist with a super orthodox, Pharisaic Jew to be the most influential man other than Christ for Christianity, then can't he use you and I this morning? I want you to remember this is the guy who imprisoned people and beat people, who gave the approval of the stoning of Stephen. He, he cast their votes against people to have them put to death, to punish them, to blaspheme the name of Christ. Never assume or underestimate God's ability to use anyone he wants. Number two, we should never throw the past into Christian's future. We have a bad habit of doing this, and we need to stop doing that. Never throw the past into a Christian's future. Saul is converted, and then all people want to talk about is his past. Well, I've heard many reports. Do you know the harm that he's done? Isn't that the man that raised havoc with the Christians? Hasn't he come to really take us prisoners? Then he tries to join them, and they won't have anything to do with them. They're all afraid of him. 
Folks, we never should throw the past in front of Christians' future. Amen? Number two, numbers are important. I know. This is going to really rub some of you the wrong way. But numbers are important. Let's say I take your children, your grandchildren, okay? I take your children on a bus tour to White Rock, yours, Jacob, and I leave here with 31 children in the bus, and we spend all day hiking around White Rock and repelling around White Rock, you know White Rock, with the 300-foot cliffs. We can see forever, but there's big bluffs and rocks below. I take Lily with me, okay? I take Asa with me. And we take off on this, and we have a great time. And I get back to the church, and we had 31 when I left. But when I get back, I've got 28. Numbers don't matter, do they? Do they, know, do they matter now? Of course they matter. Of course, numbers matter. In the book of Acts, I count, is it 11? 11 scriptures that talk about increasing numbers. Now, am I saying that, that's, that discipleship and spiritual growth is not important? No, I'm not saying that at all. Okay? Spiritual growth and discipleship is very important, but so are numbers. Sometimes we like to hide behind spiritual growth and discipleship about the people that we have in the church so we could ignore that our numbers are shrinking, so we can feel good about ourselves, and we forget about our commission to go and seek and save the lost. Folks, numbers matter. And if we're being the church that we ought to be, then we ought to be growing. Well, Keith, I don't want to be part of a mega church. That's fine. When we get up around 250 and we, we get beyond the walls of this church, we'll start a church somewhere else. And we'll fill it up too. We're trying to seek and save the lost. Amen? Do numbers matter? Absolutely. Number four, God does not show favoritism. Peter says, I I realize now how true it is that God shows no favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Later on he says, no one can stand in the way of them being baptized in water. He's speaking to all of our prejudice and bigotry. We've all got them. You don't think you have any prejudice and bigotry? See me after church, I'll spend... I'll spend 10 minutes with you and prove that you do. I've got them. And Peter's saying, that's not, that's not God. God shows no favoritism. He wants everyone, everyone to know Christ. Number five, God works differently with different people. What I want you to understand here is that God may save people 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 may come to know Christ in a different form and fashion than you did. 
your story is not everybody's story. One of the beautiful things about people witnessing about their story is we realize how diverse it is and how they come to Christ. But I want you to realize in this story, one man's a religious man who has a terrible heart. And God knocks him to his knees, turns his world upside down. And tells him, you will be my servant. I'm going to show you what it means to be my servant. And then the other man, it's like a dichotomy. The other man, who you would think would be brutal and mean, is kind and considerate. He's a soldier. And God gently brings someone into his life to show him Christ. God works differently with different people. And he knows what everyone needs. And don't be surprised at that. Don't be surprised that different forms of evangelism work better with different people. Did you know that Paul tells his story three different times in the book of Acts on how his conversion went? And did you know that each time he tells it, it's a little bit different Because he's in front of a different audience each time. Because God works differently with different people. Don't put God in a box. He's too big to fit in anything you or I can imagine. This crazy guy, Paul, he told us that. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Don't try to put God in a box because he's bigger than anything you can ever imagine. Working all the time to bring Christ Jesus to the world. This morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't submitted your life to him in repentance, confession, and baptism, it's time to do that. It's time to put him as the ruler and the king of your life so you might enjoy life in the kingdom of God. If there's anything you can that you need, that we could help you with, you can come forward at this time. Or The elders will be at the back after services. They'll be more than willing to help you with anything. If you have any spiritual need, won't you come and make it known today as we stand and we sing.